Foundation Course 2. Talk 2. Guilt, Real and Unreal. Guilt and feelings associated with guilt are sometimes a great problem for meditators. They can be very insistent. Some say it's to do with their Christian upbringing, or guilt only arises because of the concepts of a vengeful deity. But guilt is a human phenomena, and each individual suffers their own particular amount of it, depending on their understanding and the offence committed. If the search for pleasure and the self-identification with pleasurable things brings about a syndrome of emotional responses, guilt also creates such a one, but a wholly different set of reactions. Guilt itself is just the knowledge of having done something against one's conscience. Conscience here means simply knowing, but a knowing of a particular kind. It is the knowing of what is right and what is wrong. In Buddhism, it is better to talk of what is right and wrong in terms of skillfulness or unwholesomeness. Everyone has a conscience, and every conscience is different. Even though there is a broad agreement about such things as murder and theft, when it comes to the outer reaches of our definitions, the edges get frayed. Is it right to execute someone who has killed another? At what point is abortion the killing of a human being? Our conscience tells us what is wholesome for us or what is unwholesome for us. This conscience, then, is our moral wisdom and therefore contains within it right or wrong understanding. This understanding determines our intentions and acts of will, which in turn determine our karma. So it is obviously very important to investigate conscience slow, closely. We need to question all our understandings and opinions about morality, good and bad. The Buddha makes it quite clear that ignorance is no excuse. Being ignorant will not save us from the consequences of an unwholesome act. This is a verse from the Dharmapada. A fool, while he performs unskillful deeds, does not know them to be unskillful. But that fool still suffers for his unskillfulness, just as one burnt by fire. In other words, a child, just because she doesn't know what matches do, and still plays with them even after parental warnings, will still be burnt. She may even burn the house down. We are not isolated individuals. We are an integral part of an interrelated world. If we do harm, harm comes back to us. So knowing what is unwholesome and unskillful is of great importance to us if we want to put an end to the suffering we cause ourselves and unjustly to other human beings. So having a conscience means that whenever we do something we know it to be wholesome, unwholesome or neutral. When we know that what we have done is wholesome, pleasant feelings arise, our self-esteem grows. The proverbial helping of the old person across the road makes one feel good. To do good is to feel good about oneself. It dispels feeling of self-hate, self-belittlement. On the other hand, if while driving my car an old person steps onto the zebra crossing and screeching to a halt, I wind down my window and shout abuse to the effect that old people ought to be done away with as kindly as possible. Afterwards, if I'm truthful with myself, I shall know myself to have been cruel. I've gone against my knowledge of what is wholesome and skillful. I have crossed my conscience. This knowing that I have transgressed the moral law is guilt. 
The dictionary definition talks of failure to do one's duty, the fact of having committed an offence, the state of having willfully committed a crime. Now we can see what guilt is. It is simply knowing one has done what one ought not to do. It is perfectly right and proper in such a case to feel and know oneself to be guilty. Knowing oneself to be guilty is just awareness of having done something harmful. Now this knowledge is accompanied by two feelings in Buddhist psychology, shame and dread. Shame is just those varying degrees of embarrassment plus the knowledge that one has lost the respect of others and self-respect. If I'm caught shoplifting a battery for my Walkman, I feel so small. I feel humiliated. I know people now see me not as a worthy citizen, but as a petty thief. Shame can be a very painful experience. Knowing this sets a barrier, a protection against me doing such things. You used to hear parents say to young people, Have you no shame? Don't you feel ashamed? It's gone out of fashion now because of our general rejection of guilt as a good thing and the fear of creating a guilt complex. But in Buddhist understanding, guilt is a proper role to play and it is entwined with self-esteem and self-respect and the esteem and respect others have of us. Perhaps we ought to say to our children, Have you no self-respect? Don't you want to be respected? It may be a more positive way of saying the same thing. Now at the same time as feeling ashamed, I also feel afraid. For when I'm caught red-handed, dread also arises. I fear the consequences of my act. I know I can be prosecuted or fined. I may even lose my job. Knowing there are inescapable consequences for what I do also creates a barrier, a protection against my doing unskillful, unwholesome acts. The Buddha, again in the Dhammapada, warns us, not in the sky, nor in the middle of the ocean, nor in a cave of a mountain, nor anywhere else is there a place where we can escape from the consequences of an unwholesome deed. There's a story concerning this verse. It was the answer the Buddha gave to some monks who told him about this strange event. They had been travelling on a boat which suddenly stopped mid-water and apparently refused to move. The people on the boat drew lots, and three times it fell to the wife of the skipper. He decided he didn't want so many people to suffer on account of his wife, so he had a sandbag tied round her neck and had her thrown overboard. Now, to our modern ears, this might seem highly suspicious and a clever way of ridding himself of a troublesome wife. But the commentary goes on to say that this was the consequence of having drowned a pet dog because she had been made to feel ashamed of it. A heavy consequence indeed, though it's nice to see animals being given the high regard they deserve as fellow beings. In Buddhist understanding, these two reactions to doing harm, shame and dread, are not only the guardians that prevent someone from committing an unskillful act, but also the guardians of order in a society. If people felt neither shame nor dread of consequences, what would stop them from doing harm? In fact, such people are often described as psychopathic, mentally ill. The fact about hardened criminals is that personal gain seems to get the better of discretion, of shame and dread, even though their actions may make others suffer a great deal and bring great suffering to themselves. In the case of violent political actions, all such considerations are discarded in favour of the ideology. The ends justify the means. It's right and proper to kill opponents.
Now, if there is such a thing as a balanced conscience whose guardians are shame and dread, and if there is such a thing as a moral code of behaviour that is the foundation of social and interpersonal harmony, why has guilt become such a great problem for us? Let's take a typical case. Billy, a lively lad, found an easy supply of comics and sweets. He just makes sure no one's looking while he helps himself. When Billy's finally caught, his parents are very upset and the first thing they tell him is that he's a thief. Being a thief is bad, very bad. Therefore, Billy comes to understand that he's a thief and he's bad. Billy has been told he's bad, off and on, every time he upsets his parents. He's alternatively selfish, cruel, lazy, good-for-nothing, a nuisance, a why we put up with you we'll never know. A part of Billy knows himself to be bad Billy, big bad Billy. It becomes a self-definition, and with it, low self-esteem, low self-respect, that is, self-hate. Identifying the action with the actor creates a wrong identity. No doubt, the act of stealing is not something to encourage in children. But one theft doesn't make a thief. In fact, a million thefts don't make a thief. If, by thief, we mean someone who is a thief by nature. Once we're taught as children to get into these traps of self-definitions, it's very difficult to find an escape. This sort of guilt is not the proper guilt about an action committed, but a neurotic guilt about the person who committed the action. So my fear of consequences is compounded by the fear that that's the sort of person I am and I can't do anything about it. The understanding that humans are somehow essentially evil, some more than others, bad at the core, so to speak, is a chief cause of mistaken self-definition and later leads to all our problems with guilt. The Buddha taught that we were born in ignorance, that because of our ignorance we acted with wrong intention, but always with the idea of fulfilling our desires. Not knowing what desires led to suffering for ourselves and others, and what desires lead to happiness is the essential problem. At fundament, the human is wise, is enlightened, is a Buddha, meaning someone who has the potential to be enlightened. If we truly grasp this point, that it is our ignorance that must be dispelled, that we are not essentially evil, then in our meditation we must allow these damning self-definitions to emerge. These voices must be listened to, you're useless, you're inadequate, you're wicked and evil, you're terrible. No one can love you, you can't love anyone. And so on. Through the power of our intuitive wisdom, we see these as disembodied voices. Voices we have taken into ourselves. The personality is but a collection of such habits. And just as habits are formed, so they can be unformed. Meditation should help us to confront these often painful self-definitions, see them as mere opinions, as changeable, and by not indulging them, through this understanding, allow their power over our thinking to die out. Meanwhile, poor Billy, although he was caught, didn't take the opportunity to clear his heart of all the offences. He swore in tears that he had only ever taken one comic and one bag of sweets. That's why he was let off lightly, with warnings of lashings and thrashings, if ever he should even think of doing such a thing again. Unfortunately for Billy, guilt feelings, especially of the fear of being found out, 
sit uncomfortably in his mind. Since no one does find out, Billy represses those feelings and begins to see this as a clever ploy. He's now compounded his stealing with lying and both have been fairly successful in satisfying his desires. But the result of this is to laden his mind with all sorts of unresolved guilt. Since boyhood, Billy hasn't stolen a thing, but feelings of guilt still dog him. Whenever a policeman should appear, panic arises. Worse, whenever he does do anything wrong, the proper guilt he ought to feel is fueled by all the unresolved guilt, so that he feels overly guilty and anxious, and has to apologise profusely even when he inadvertently steps on someone's toe. It is also possible that such is the store of unresolved guilt, coupled with self-definition of being a bad person, that his worldview is so distorted he sees all sorts of people out to get him, conspiracy everywhere, paranoid at worst. Again, it is in meditation that these phantom guilts can be dealt with. Let them come to the attention. Feel them fully. Accept them fully. Don't criticise or look for excuses and scapegoats. Don't get into conversation with them. Let them be. Just let them disclose themselves and sit equanimously within all the discomfort. Slowly, their strength declines. Their power dissolves. Unfortunately, yet again, Billy is to be pitied, the more, for his parents have told him that even bad thoughts are something he should be ashamed of and feel guilty about. The Buddha's teaching is very clear on this. Thoughts and images that arise in the mind are the consequences, the results of past actions. When Billy walks into a newsagent, the idea arises of stealing a book to slip one inside his coat. That idea has been conditioned by Billy's past actions. It has become a conditioned response whenever he sees books. Up to this point, what Billy is suffering from is the karmic results of past actions, the vipaka. He has not yet committed any new karma. What happens next is crucial. If Billy is taken to the idea, it will obsess, possess his mind. He will make a decision to take the book. Billy, by this decision, has only reinforced the thought, the intention, of stealing. On the other hand, he may exert himself. He may even put the book in his coat and then decide against it. If he takes his action up to this point, he has reinforced his inclination to steal. But we cannot yet say he has stolen, or that he has created any new karma in the sense of a completed, unwholesome action. It is only when these three components all come together can we talk of a karmic action the intention, the effort or exertion, and the actual completion of the act. In this case, when Billy walks out of the shop with the book. Up until this actual moment of taking, Billy is only reinforcing his state of mind, the mental habit, which will have the unwholesome result of making further temptations harder to overcome. These are the consequences of intention and exertion. But upon the actual completion of the act, the stealing itself, not only is there the inner consequence, but the outer consequence too. At some point in time, because we are all interrelated, interfused, a result will arise from that harmful, unskillful action. In the Dharmapada, the Buddha warns us, even an unskillful person may still find happiness, so long as his unskillfulness does not bear fruit. 
But when his unskillfulness does bear fruit, he will meet with unwholesome consequences. Let us recap a moment. Firstly, we can say that unwholesome actions have the same root cause as sensual pleasure. We do them because we think they will bring us pleasure and happiness. Foundation Course in Buddhism, Talk 1 The First Noble Truth of Suffering, Dukkha Dukkha literally means hard to bear or difficult to endure. So Dukkha is variously translated as pain, suffering, misery, discontent, discomfort, unhappiness, frustration, unsatisfactoriness and such like. It is a very difficult word to translate into English since it has so many shades of meaning, much as our word love has. But we need to know these meanings because dukkha is a central concept of the Buddha's teachings. In fact, it's the starting point of his whole doctrine. The first noble truth states that life itself is suffering, is unsatisfactory. Because of this bold statement, Buddhism is accused of being life-negating, of being negative and pessimistic. And it would be so were it not for the third noble truth, which states in equally bold fashion that there is an end to suffering. The Buddha summed up his whole teaching saying that he only taught two things, the truth of suffering and the end of suffering. It was his experience of life as unsatisfactory that led the Buddha to leave home and follow the hard ascetic life. The Buddha was born into the Kshatriya caste who were the rulers, governors, landed gentry, you might say, of those times. The other castes were, and still are in Hinduism, the Brahmins, the highest caste, who were the priests of the society. Beneath them, the Kshatriya, then the Vaisya, who were the merchants and tradesmen, and finally the Sudra, who were the artisans and workers. All other peoples, such as the slaves, were outside the caste system. They were the pariahs. The Buddha's father was a leader of a small group of Kshatriya families known as the Sakyas, their clan name, who ruled in an area of North India on the border of present-day Nepal. Life for the young Siddhartha Gautama was, we can believe, easy and pleasant, and may even have been luxurious. It seems, however, that his courtly life upbringing did not hide from him the suffering inherent in life and a legend tells how he came to face this. While out riding and hunting on various days, he first saw a sick man, then a dying man, and finally a corpse. Here is a passage from one of the discourses where the Buddha explains his experience. First he tells us how luxurious his life was. I was delicate, most delicate, extremely delicate. Lily pools were made at my father's house solely for my benefit. Blue lilies flowered one, white lilies another, red lilies a third. I used no sandalwood that was not of Benares. My turban, tunic, lower garments and cloak were all made of Benares cloth. A white sunshade was held over me day and night, so no cold or heat or dust or grit or dew might inconvenience me. So now we have an idea of his courtly lifestyle, but... Whilst I had such power and good fortune, yet I thought, 
When an ordinary untaught man who is subject to ageing, not safe from ageing, sees another who has aged, he is shocked, humiliated and disgusted, for he had forgotten that he himself is no exception. But I too am subject to ageing, not safe from ageing, and so it cannot be right for me to be shocked, humiliated and disgusted when I see another who has aged. When I considered this, the vanity of my youth completely left me. I thought, when an ordinary untaught man, who is subject to sickness, not safe from sickness, sees another who is sick, he is shocked, humiliated and disgusted, for he had forgotten that he himself is no exception. But I too am subject to sickness, not safe from sickness, and so it cannot be right for me to be shocked, humiliated and disgusted when I see another who is sick. When I considered this, the vanity of health completely left me. I thought, when an ordinary untaught man, who is subject to death, not safe from death, sees another who is dead, he is shocked, humiliated and disgusted, for he had forgotten that he himself is no exception. But I too am subject to death, not safe from death, so it cannot be right for me to be shocked, humiliated and disgusted, when I see another who is dead. When I considered this, the vanity of life itself completely left me. Given the additions of an ordered tradition, for the scriptures were not actually written down for 500 years after the Buddha's death, what we can accept as fact is that the whole problem of suffering had become a major concern for the young nobleman. The last straw, it seems, was when he woke up in the early morning after a night of revelry and saw about him bodies lying about in ungainly and disgusting positions, the air foul with the smell of alcohol and vomit. His sense of disgust coupled with the growing weariness of trying to find any substantial or meaningful happiness in a life geared to sensual pleasure finally caused him to leave. That early morning he left on his favourite horse Kantaka and with his faithful servant Channa rode beyond three kingdoms and crossed the river Anoma. He cut off his hair as a sign of renouncing the life devoted to sensual pleasure. He then gave his ornaments and jewellery to Channa and went in search of a teacher. It is said that such was the distress of his horse Kandaka that he died of a heart attack. In another discourse, reasons of a more philosophical nature are given by the Buddha to explain how he came to this momentous decision, known as the Great Renunciation. At this time, before I was enlightened, because I was subject to birth, I wanted to find out the nature of birth. So I thought to myself, since I am subject to birth, what if I were to find out what birth really is and discover the unsatisfactoriness of the nature of birth? So I set out to discover the unborn, the supreme of Nibbana. And he says the same of sickness, old age and death. In other words, he left the court confident there was an end to suffering, which, by the way, was not annihilation. So what constitutes this dukkha? Suffering or unsatisfactoriness is divided into three categories. The first is called ordinary suffering. The second is called the suffering caused by the changing nature of life. And the third is that caused by our conditioning or conditioned states. Here we shall concern ourselves with the first category, ordinary suffering. 
This is how the Buddha expresses it in his first ever discourse after his enlightenment in which he expounds the basic teachings of the Four Noble Truths and the Eightfold Noble Path. It is called the Discourse on the Turning of the Wheel of the Law. This is the first noble truth of suffering. Birth is suffering. Decay is suffering. Death is suffering. Sorrow, grief, lamentation, physical and mental pain, despair are all suffering. To be with what we dislike is suffering. To be separated from what we like is suffering. Here it is important to grasp that the Buddha is talking about those things people normally associate with suffering and pain. The whole birth process, teething, acne, hormonal changes, middle age crises, the aches and pains of growing old and the final agony of death. He also means the emotional pains of frustration, anxiety, depression, despair and so on. He is also saying that this is part and parcel of life itself. We are subject to this suffering. It's the package we receive when we're born. When we really contemplate this, really think about it, it's depressing. Yes, it's true. The only thing I can say with absolute certainty about my life is that it will end. I will die, whether I like it or not. But it is only when we find the courage to face this hard fact, rather than avoid it, that there can be any possibility of discovering if there is anything beyond this cycle of birth and death. That is what the Buddha did as a young man. He decided to face the facts, and it led him to discover that which is beyond birth and death, Nibbana. Generally speaking, much of our suffering lies in the fact that we find it hard to face this sort of reality. It is a good exercise to look over the past and see how we have approached and tackled problems, upsets, catastrophes and traumas. One way we approach the painful is to avoid it, to shun it, to try and escape from it. We prefer to do anything but feel the pain, physical or mental. On a physical level, as soon as even a small ache is felt in the head, we reach for the bottle of pills. Sometimes, if we get a slight pain in the body, we'll ignore it. We'll pretend it's nothing, but underneath the apparent easy-going attitude is the fear we don't face that it may be a cancer or a dangerous illness. On the emotional level, if we feel depressed, we'll try and drown it out with a drink. If we feel bored, we'll try and escape by turning on the TV. If we feel lonely or anxious, we'll phone a friend. Anything not to feel. The boredom, the depression, the anxiety, the loneliness and so on. We don't want to feel them. Why should we? If these escape routes are blocked, if we can't use our usual means of pushing these negative feelings away, we'll talk about them. We'll spend hours groaning, complaining, whinging and whining to family, friends, colleagues, doctors, anyone who'll listen. Even the cat gets an earful. For instance, very few people will face up to the fact of death. You can joke about it, but you can't talk about it seriously. That can get too close to the feelings of terror and horror it arouses. Some will have long conversations about death. What is death? What is it to die? To be or not to be? Wonderful questions, but all intellectualizations, all rationalizations. It makes you feel good to talk about and around death, but it's still escapism. It's just a mental exercise. It separates us from the real feelings we have about death. If we really want to know what it is to die, we should visit mortuaries and look upon actual corpses. Not for ghoulish fancies, 
but to arouse our subconscious fears. This is what the monks in the Buddha's time used to do. They would visit the charnel grounds and gaze upon dead bodies in different states of decay. Some do it even to this day, I believe. By such an exercise, we come to know not what death is, but rather how we relate to it. We can never know death as it really is till we actually die. So what's the point of talking about it? It's just another way of escaping our painful feelings, our suffering. The peculiar thing is that this sort of attitude, constantly turning away from what is painful, blocking it, rationalizing it, always escaping, causes the mind to dwell on the good side of life, the pleasures, the excitement, the bright future. It produces an unreal optimism. Things always turn out all right. Life's great. I'm happy. Eat, drink and be merry, for we die tomorrow. Not now. Anyway, it won't happen to me. Not in the foreseeable future. So what's all this talk about life is suffering? I'm happy. Life's great. This sort of optimism is obviously false, leading to false beliefs and false hopes. And beneath it all sits a lot of repressed fears and anxieties. Such a person is not prepared for the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune. When the Buddha states that life is unsatisfactory, he is asking us to see life as it really is and not to shy away from its inbuilt suffering. The opposite of this approach to life is when we submit passively to suffering and misfortune. Life's hard and then you die. A helplessness, a loss of reason for living. What's the point? It's all work, work, work. Why bother? We're all going to die. At first sight, compared to the optimist, this might seem a little more realistic. At least, the pessimist is accepting totally the one fact of life of which we can be certain. Indeed, in the face of overwhelming evidence that life does end, what is the point of effort, of success? Death mocks all our ambitions and achievements. The logical conclusion of such an understanding is despair and suicide, or a brave stoicism, where life just has to be suffered and you may as well make the best of a bad job. For such people, living can take on a certain desperation, and sometimes, quite paradoxically, a compulsiveness to achieve, to win, to somehow fly in the face of despair. No doubt we've all faced certain events in our lives in these two ways, to some degree or another. But is there another way of seeing life which neither leads us down the garden path of foolish hopes, nor drags us into tunnels of despair, despondency and gloom. The Buddha would have us investigate life impartially, to see it as it really is, accepting the situation totally. Within that clarity of view, it is easier for us to act. That is what he called the middle path, and it is often the name given to his teachings. His teachings were very clear on this point. Suffering is caused by seeking happiness, in the pleasures of the senses, because such things don't last. The person who concentrates his life on the next exciting thing to do is doing exactly this, forever seeking enjoyment, distraction and pleasure. Such persons are blind to the suffering that surrounds them. On the other hand, people who try to deny all pleasure and happiness and are overcome by the sufferings of life have become blinded to the possibility of the real peace and joy to be found in living. What is worse is that both are blinded to the higher reality that transcends both the pleasures and the tribulations of life.
the Buddha asked us to take a realistic approach, not to pin our hopes on the transient pleasures of life, nor to be overcome by suffering and death, but to accept this dual situation totally, work within it, and try to discover what lies beyond it. This realistic approach can be experienced at first hand in our meditation. What is it we are doing but facing and accepting all the negativity that arises, observing all the pleasurable and joyful feelings and thoughts, and seeing all of this for what it really is, just passing phenomena, momentary mental objects. Realizing the passing nature of things undercuts false hopes. Seeing the arising of things, the birth of every moment, undercuts despair. Let us take the threat of nuclear war. Some people feel this threat of a nuclear holocaust as an ever-present reality. They are fearful and anxious, angry and frustrated, depressed and despairing. Others don't seem to see the danger at all. They feel secure under the nuclear umbrella, the deterrent. Anyway, they say, a nuclear war is unthinkable. What's the point of fighting it? No one would win. Humans wouldn't be so mad. Here, we have two opposite reactions to a given situation, the pessimistic and the falsely optimistic. Contemplating the possibility of a nuclear holocaust, even if it were to happen by mistake, might awaken those never-will-happen believers to the potential harm and motivate them to support disarmament. Accepting the possibility of nuclear holocaust with all that that means, especially to ourselves personally, for a lot of our fear of nuclear war is a fear of our own death, both fear and anxiety may be lessened. Once they are, we are much more capable of positive action. Anxiety and fear drain our energy, bring about panic and confusion. With a clearer mind, a more firm direction can be found. But we can only do what we can do. For some, it may mean joining a march. For others, influencing head of states. We have to accept our limitations. If we don't, we will suffer from anger, frustration, depression and despair. This polarity of pessimism and false optimism needs to be steadied towards a calm grasp of reality, seeing the situation just as it is. We need to be very much aware of how our emotions colour a situation. Here lies the importance of meditation practice, insight vipassana meditation. This was the Buddha's great discovery in his enlightenment. He discovered that by just developing awareness we are able to heal all our negativities and slowly purify the heart. When we sit, this is an opportunity to observe, really experience our moods and emotions, our states of mind. But investigate here does not mean to analyze, to ask questions, to wonder about the causes. It means simply to experience, to feel the emotions and mood as they really are. Equally important is to observe also our feelings about them, our reactions to them. When I feel depressed, how do I feel about it? Do I get angry? Do I get fearful and anxious? Do I get depressed about being depressed? The first step in the meditation is to begin to lose our fears and aversions towards states of mind. This is the first step in purifying the mind, having established some concentration on the breath. We observe any state of mind that arises, any mood or emotion that comes to our attention. Observe them as bodily feelings. There may be feelings of heaviness from depression, heat from anger, 
wobbliness from fear and tightness from anxiety. These feelings manifest in different parts of the body, sometimes in the chest or stomach or abdomen, for instance. We just watch it all calmly, noticing, observing. We see that everything is changing, everything is arising and passing away. What is it we are achieving here? By this simple observation, we are losing our fears of and aversions to negative states of mind as they arise. By not repressing these negative states of mind, they display themselves and to our amazement pass away. We are healing our hearts, we are purifying our minds. We must also be equally aware of pleasant feelings, observing them just as keenly, but this time observing how the mind grasps for them, longs to indulge in them. Of course, they pass away too. Observing the passing of pleasant states of mind stops us becoming falsely optimistic. Observing the passing of painful states of mind stops us becoming pessimistic. Seeing both as passing phenomena leads to a realistic view of life. When the mind is realistic, knowing things as they really are, it is equanimous and peaceful. To win a million or to lose a million does not ruffle this inner calm. This is the joy of the middle path. This is what the Buddha wanted us to do, to know ourselves as we really are. Meditation helps us to realize this, but it shouldn't stop there. We should keep this frame of mind, this understanding, throughout the day, every day. I hope you found this talk interesting and helpful. May all of you be happy and peaceful. May all of you attain the Nibbanic peace within. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.